Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for musical worship. Thank you for all of the other forms of worship that we're able to participate in. And now as we worship you through hearing your word, we would ask that you would open our eyes uh, supernaturally and spiritually and move in our hearts that we might know you better, that we might trust, trust you in a way that would be appropriate, that you would do your will in our lives even now. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus said, I am the true vine. I'm not sure what your plans are today for the rest of the day, but I can say with a pretty high level of certainty that nothing you hear today will even come close to matching that statement. I am the true vine. Jesus says. And if you've been in church a lot, or you've read the Bible a lot, that might really mean something to you. Or it might not. But it really means something. For Jesus to say, I am the true vine, is colossal. It is massive. in telling us who He is, in in telling us how He's unique, and in telling us how super important it is that we are trusting in Him as the true vine. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Jesus according to John. And I think we're going to do the first half of the first verse what we're going to do. So someone said to me, are you ever going to get to John 15? I said, yeah, we're going to do the first half of the first verse today. So John 15, and we're going to look at that statement from Jesus. I am the true vine. Why is it so massive? Why is it such a big deal? Why is it, as I said, colossal? Well, let me kind of acclimate you a little bit. It's huge because of where Jesus says it. Chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, that group of chapters is when Jesus is telling his followers, his disciples, that he's leaving, and so he's instructing them with kind of final instructions. He's uh, re-emphasizing things, he's reteaching things, but he's preparing them. He's getting them ready, not only for his crucifixion, but after he is raised from the dead, he's going to leave them. Okay, So it's, it's, it's a huge statement for Jesus to, to remind them or to say, I am the true vine, because he's about ready to be crucified, and then he's going to leave them all alone, and here's what's going to happen. They're going to be faced with the very, very serious reality and question of whether or not it's worth being a follower of Jesus. Later on in chapter 15, he's preparing them during this time. He makes it very clear that they're going to face persecution and hostility because they're believers in him. Okay? He's getting them ready for that. Think of it in these terms. It's not very complicated, but it's important that we understand. Think of it in terms of he's re-emphasizing who he is and just how crucial it is that they're believing in him as the true vine because it's about to get bad in their lives. 
He's going to be crucified. They're going to be persecuted. So they need to remember, 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 and never lose sight of the fact that it's worth believing in Him, trusting in Him, resting in Him, following His commandments in response because of who He is. Okay? So chapter 15, even though we're only going to do the first part of the first verse, basically it breaks down like this. You've got that great statement at the very beginning. Then he goes on to explain if it's true that he's the true vine, here's how one should respond to him. And then he, at the end, talks about persecution. Okay, And we're going to cover all that kind of stuff. We're going to cover it later. But for now, I want us to, to, to feel the significance and the weightiness and the grandeur and the awesomeness and all of those kinds of nesses. <sighs> that he is the true vine. Oh, maybe one more thing. We will talk about us, but we might save that till the end. We're going to talk about those disciples and what they're facing, but a disciple is a follower, a learner. Christians are called disciples too. This is relevant to us. We might not face their same persecution. We may not face the same persecution as people face in other places, but it's a promise of the Bible from Jesus. We'll hear it in John 15 that if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be a price to pay. Whether it be a family price, an economic price, a social price, a some kind of price. And you need to know that. And I need to know that. Because the time does come when we say, is it really worth it? Is it really worth being a believer in Jesus? If he's the true vine, it is. And so later on in chapter 15, he's going to talk about our joy as believers. Joy in him, no matter what the circumstances are, no matter how terrible it is, joy can be yours, not tied to circumstance, good or bad, but tied to him, because he's the true vine. There's my introduction. Longer than some sermons, I know. But I want you to be ready for, for this and, and, and to say, oh, I, I understand John 15 better. I understand Jesus better so I can trust Him appropriately for my eternal life and for my joy no matter what happens. That's what I hope happens this morning. Uh, I hope we can leave with, it, with that in our minds, in our hearts. So look with me if you would. John 15 verse 1. I am the true vine and my Father... Well, we'll at least look at the whole verse, right? And my Father is the vine dresser. The one who takes care of the vine, right? Well, already, we're, let, let's just kind of dig in and say there are some hugely significant things there. Starting with the fact that he, it's another I am statement. Well, Jesus has been making these I am statements. And it's just not by coincidence of grammar or when I say I am going to lunch today. No, he's been saying these kinds of things on purpose and his... Opponents have known it because they've wanted to kill him. Because he's been saying these I am kinds of things in John's gospel account uh, in the sense of that's how God talks. Like when God is asked what his name is in the Old Testament and he says, I am. Self-existent. God. Different. Unique. Holy. So that right there is, is, is enough to catch my attention and say Jesus is different than just a human being. He's different than just a prophet. Another I am statement. 
Also, even notice how striking it is when he says, my father is the vine dresser. I want to save most of the significance of that for next time. But when Jesus says, my father, there's been a history of that kind of talk. And if you haven't been here, I'll bring you up to speed. Or if you've forgotten, Jesus has been talking in terms of his relationship to his father. And it's made people not only uncomfortable, it's made them angry. Because you just can't be that personal with God. See, they might think a little bit different than we think in our culture. In a certain sense, there's a good high reverence. We're talking about God to the point where even though it's not biblical, Jewish tradition had it that they wouldn't even say His proper name. Yahweh. The Bible doesn't say you can't say it, but there was that untouchable. For those of you who like the academic side of theology, he is the ineffable tetragrammaton. You heard it here first. The ineffable tetragrammaton. Four-letter word, Yahweh in Hebrew. Ineffable. You, you can't even say his name. That's how unique and distinct and holy he is. Well, there's something good about that, even though sometimes tradition takes it too far into legalism. But there's something unique. And here Jesus, back to the case in point, I'm getting back to my notes now, when Jesus says, my father is the vine dresser, there's unique relationship, unity, to the point where it made some Jews mad enough. We've already seen in John's gospel account, they wanted to kill him. You just don't talk about God that way. And you know what? In one sense, that's right. You don't talk about God that way unless your name is Jesus. Unless you are none other than the eternal son who existed before Genesis. A la John chapter 1. So, I mean, this is huge when he's even saying these things, and, and I'm, I'm on purpose not reading too much into it. I'm just reading it in light of what we've already seen in John. If he has that kind of relationship with his father as the true vine, I, I want in on it, and you do too. And that's where you're going to get your joy from. And, and persecution would, would be a small cost. Now let's talk about the metaphor, the word picture, the vine. I am, let's just talk about the vine for now and then we'll talk about the true vine. What's that about? Well, a vine, clearly here his intention is, in light of what he has said, is source of life. Because he's going to talk about vine and believers are branches and you've got to be connected. And if you're not connected to him, you don't have any life. So he's the source of life. So that's pretty straightforward. It reminds me in my mind, because this is all one discourse and it's all together in John chapter 14, where he says, I am the life. Well, this is another way of saying the same kind of thing with the word picture. And we know from reading through John's gospel account, if we've been doing that, Jesus has been saying again and again and again and again things about eternal life. Life, 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 eternal life. How do you get eternal life? How do you receive eternal life? How do you receive life everlasting? It's by believing. It's by trusting. It's by resting in Jesus, who he is and what he's going to do. His perfect life, his substitutionary death, his resurrection. He's been talking about all of those things even though they haven't happened yet. I'm the vine. 
I'm where you come for life. He's saying nothing new. He's just saying it in another way. Believing in Him. But then, let's add that other word. The true vine, and let's talk about that. I've got to confess to you, when I just quote this off the top of my head, I was afraid I was going to do it this morning, and I don't think I have so far. When I think of John 15, I think, okay, vine and branches. I've got a category for that. I at least, okay, I know John 15, vine and branches, abiding, union with Christ. All of those are good and right thoughts, I think. True vine. My tendency would be not even to say true. Just because, oh, vine and branches. He is the vine, we are the branches. That's all true. But he goes out of his way to make a point and put some emphasis, I am the true vine. As opposed to vines that aren't true vines. I'm the true source of life as opposed to others who are not the true source of life. Uniqueness, like in chapter 14. It's meant to be seen. And I want to talk about maybe some false sources of life. But let's wait, let's wait for that. We got, I just want us to do some learning still. What, what, where did this come from? We have to speculate. At the end of chapter 14, it says they left. Chapter 14, verse 31, rise, let us go from here. So they're still talking. He's still discipling the disciples. But they leave, and now they're somewhere else. It doesn't say where they are. They may have walked by a vineyard. And then there's the, there's the point of illustration. Or some decorations. The temple's decorated with vines and grapes doesn't matter. But for whatever reason, probably because of something they saw, he goes out of his way to say, I am the true vine in contrast to that which is not the true vine. What do you think that's about? Among other things, It's about Israel, the nation, and himself. That's what it's about. Read any commentary. That's a risky thing to say. Um, (laughs) See, we don't think like this, and I, I, I grant you we've got to step back in history a couple thousand years to understand the significance, but I think it's worth understanding in the long run so that when we face the hard times and we need to have our joy, we, we at least have a little bit more than a superficial kind of reading of it. I am the true vine is, I am the true vine, you rest in me, you trust in me, Jesus is saying, you don't rest and trust and go back to that temple. You're going to want to. When you can't buy, you can't sell, you can't trade, you can't go home for holidays, or whatever it might be for these disciples, just remember this. I may be crucified, I may be resurrected, I may leave you, but I am the true vine. You see, because in the Old Testament, Israel is likened to the vineyard. It's symbolic for Israel. And he's making a point of comparison and contrast. Just a few quotes from credible 
mainstream commentaries. The Old Testament frequently uses the vineyard or vine as a symbol for Israel, God's covenant people. True vine contrasts Jesus with Old Testament Israel and its lack of fruitfulness and spiritual degeneracy. The Jerusalem temple was adorned with a golden vine with large clusters of grapes. Coins featuring a vine and branches were symbols of Jerusalem first century. And again, this might not affect your life because you don't live next to a functioning temple. But I think we can appreciate what's happening. Maybe we should look at a couple of passages. Uh, Psalm 80 would be a good one. Isaiah 5 would be another good one. Jeremiah 2 would be another good one. I'll just reference at least the first couple. So if you want to look at Psalm 80, yeah, that would be worth it. Psalm 80 beginning in verse 8. So what I want us to see, at least in our little history lesson, is the disciples are going to want to go back. This happens in the book of Hebrews too, by the way. It's all wonderful and great to be with Jesus. He makes food, makes people healthy. All your needs are met. Everything he says is true. He makes your enemies look bad. It's awesome. And now he's been crucified and now he's gone. And now my life sucks. And I'm hungry. And I'm depressed. And I'm ostracized. It's not so much fun anymore. The temple sure looks good. You can have it all back. All the rites and ceremonies and customs. The things I'm comfortable with. And I'm anything but comfortable now if I'm a first century Jew. Psalm 80 is fascinating. Psalm 80, let's look at verse 8. You brought a vine, speaking to God in praise, you brought a vine out of Egypt. Who's that? Surely that's Israel. Who was delivered out of Egypt? You drove out the nations and planted it. And then he goes on, we're not going to read it for the sake of time, but he talks about how God did this. God made them a nation and God gave them all of these great things like a, like a bountiful, fruitful vineyard. It's God's vineyard. But then it says in verse 12, why then have you broken down its walls? See, the psalmist is, is seeing that there, there's been trouble. There's been... It's not fruitful anymore. To the point where in verse 14, the psalmist cries out, Turn again, O God of hosts. Make us fruitful again. Restore us. This is not good. Please. Then, how about verse 17? It's, It's more of the same kind of thing, but how about verse 17 and we'll move on. But let your hand, he's saying to God as a prayer request, let your hand be on the man of your right hand the Son of Man, whom you have made strong for yourself. There's hope. Somehow, God, I know you're going to do this through one of your kings, king, you know, in the line of David sort of thing. And we're reading that in light of the New Testament, and we see all kinds of verbiage on that. We go, oh yeah, we, 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 know, that, we, we know even more than the psalmist knew. Where the true restoration and fruitfulness would come from. You go, oh, Interesting. Okay, Isaiah 5, I'm going to read uh, just some, some portions of Isaiah 5. You can 
Turn there if you'd like, or you can just jot it down if you'd like. It says in... I should just begin in verse 1. Remember in Isaiah, you've got all of this... um, Isaiah's a prophet. You've got all of this judgment kind of talk, chastisement, rebuke, because Israel's not the nation that God wants them to be. Okay, how about verse 1? Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. This is God's vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. That's good. He dug it and cleared it, uh, cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. I'm just going to stop there for just a second. It's awesome. He did this. He cultivated it. Everything's ready for him to receive the fruit that it should give. And then, then we read where I interrupted rudely. But it yielded wild grapes. Useless, worthless, not usable grapes. Uh, Also down in verse 4, when I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? It's it's not producing as it should. It's unusable. How about verse 7? For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting, and he looked for justice... See, that's what they should have been doing. That would have been fruitful for them to be for means of justice to the nations. Behold bloodshed for righteousness, but behold an outcry. God gave them all of these things and blessed them so abundantly and they produced the opposite. Unrighteousness, not righteousness. Jeremiah 2, 21, Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Think about the nation of Israel, how, how, how God took them, not because they were bigger or better. He took them and made them great by His grace and significant so that they would be, um, let's think in these terms, a blessing to the nations, that's Bible talk, to the non-Jews, uh, that, they, that they would be receive, recipients of and protectors of special revelation, God's holy law, even to the point of sharing it with the nations, uh, that they would be, again, the protectors and facilitators. I'm probably not using the right terms. But the, the temple is there in Jerusalem. Atonement, forgiveness, reconciliation. All of these things. A fruitful vineyard of God. And remember, Jesus says this. Is it not written... My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? Yeah. But you, Jesus says, have made it a den of robbers. And we read about this in Isaiah 56 and so on. Okay, that's probably enough for the history of things. What I want you to see, what I want you to appreciate, and I could have said all of this in 30 seconds, I know. But sometimes I get so excited about the joy of discovery, I've got to share it with you, hoping it'll be infectious. And maybe we can remember, oh, the true vine! As opposed to, in contrast with, 
He's the one. Oh, yeah. Maybe it'll stick with us a little bit better. That's who He is. He's the ultimate. He's the ultimate vine. I mean, even before this time, Israel, we get, yeah, okay, a vineyard, the Bible calls Israel a vineyard, God's vineyard. But never to be the ultimate. We could use Colossians 2 talk, Hebrews talk, types and shadows. So he's the true vine in the ultimate sense, but here he's actually using it in a point of contrast. I'm the true vine as opposed to the false vine. Because, think with me about this, at this point in time, to go back to the temple, to go back to all of those ceremonies, to go back to all of those things, would be wrong. Right? Jesus is not saying, oh no, it's never been legitimate. But it never will be again. I occupy, not me, Jesus is saying, I occupy first place, centrality of everything. You come to me, Jesus is saying, for life. You don't go backward. It's it's amazing, pretty amazing thing being said. Sinclair Ferguson, an author who wrote the book we're going to read for Theology for Breakfast, um, shared this illustration one time, so I'm going to give him credit. in a class on worship. But, but I said we're done with history. We're not. Then we're going to talk about us. And I know we all came here to talk about us, so we'll do that, I promise. We came here to talk about Jesus because he relates to us. But here's the thing. Think, think of it in terms of first century. Again, Jesus is gone. Think about what it would be like on a Saturday, on Shabbat, the holy day of Israel. And think of yourself as a person who's grown up Jewish. You might be young, you might be old. And you've come to see Jesus as the Messiah, the Deliverer, the True Vine. And there you are in your flat, or whatever it might be. Don't think commercial air conditioners or central air conditioning. Don't think about all of those kinds of things. And you know... Um, Windows by Anderson and every, you know, everything's tight and sealed and all that kind of stuff. There you are, open air to whatever degree, and let's have you living in Jerusalem. Gathering with other believers for fellowship. What do you have? You might have a, an Old Testament. Maybe some New Testament letters. Not very likely, but maybe, right? You might have some things that are memorized because there were even early confessions that were being repeated so at least people could remember the basics. You could sing some psalms, like Psalm 80. But you don't have much. But outside you can hear... Instruments. Well, maybe you have those too. I don't know. Instruments. Skilled musicians, the Old Testament talks about. 
they for sure have better music than you do. Skilled musicians. Oh, and they've got the smells and the bells. Right? Sensory overload. Talk about an experience with animal sacrifice. Oh, and, and, and if they're actually cooking the meat, oh, how good would that be? You can smell this incense. Oh, and you've got the holy hardware because you've got the, the priests with the robes and all of their stuff. And they're enjoying their families together. And you have nothing. It's a toughie. It's no wonder, and and Ferguson talks about in Hebrews chapter 6, people are thinking about going back. I got a bad deal here. Yeah. Remember, Jesus is saying, because he's going to talk about the persecution and the hostility. Remember, I am the true vine. The true source of life. Remember it when I'm here with you. Remember it when I'm gone. And remember it when they do bad, unjust things to you because you confess my name. We're not in that scenario. But we are promised. Even the Apostle Paul says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. whether it's socially, economically, on a family level, on a professional level, on a life and death level, depending on who you are, where you live, the circumstances are so different, who knows? And I'm here to tell you that when Jesus says, I am the true vine, he's saying it's worth it. Pales in comparison, and he's going to get to the joy side of things in chapter 15, and that's not by mistake. Joy is when you can have a clear attitude and a certain kind of supernatural happiness uh, that, that transcends, that goes beyond circumstances. Because you're trusting in the one who faced the worst circumstance of all, and he is victorious. Even go back to chapter 14, I'm leaving, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. I mean, all this is meant to go together and fit in, and it's grand and it's glorious and all of those things. It's, it's all coming together. So no matter what, here's what we want to do. See Jesus for who he is and stress it and stress it and stress it some more like we've done this morning, because actually that is what we all need to carry us through, how about no matter what? No matter what. It's a stable, steady, no matter what kind of joy that we can feel and experience and know when we don't feel and experience it. So, that's the first half of the first verse of John 15, and we'll go faster next week, I promise. I am the true vine. One final thing. This is on a lesser level. I kind of wanted to finish the sermon. This is not the ultimate intent. But I think this might be a helpful practice. He's talking about religion, first and foremost. And we've been talking about that. So that would apply. Don't go back to a false religion. 
because they have smells and bells and, and you, you had better family relations when you had that or whatever it is. Or, or it could be on any level, but let's just talk on a practical level as Christians. Because we do go through our lives. You will today, you will tomorrow, and we're promised a different kind of temporal salvation. Fulfillment. Life. Maybe put it another way, joy. If you just buy this, you will, is the advertisement. If you just do this, you will. If you just read this, you will. If you just apply this facial cream, you will. If you just have this surgery, you will. If you just take these hormones, you will. And I mean, on and on and on the list goes. If you just sign up and lose 30 pounds, will you, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. For me, it's if you win this race, you will. I mean, it's like, yeah, life, I love it. But we all face those kinds of things all, all of the time. Promises of salvation, maybe we call it lowercase s salvation, fulfillment and joy. And practically for me, what I want to be remembering and reminding myself of, when I've got to have that new shiny thing, because then I'm going to feel fulfilled. Nothing wrong with shiny things. Or winning, by the way. (laughs) Is Jesus saying, I am the true source of life. I'm the genuine source of life that brings joy and fulfillment. I am the true vine. In a very practical way, that might be helpful for me to either say no to some things that I need to say no to, or at least keep things in perspective. Take the pills, lose the way. I mean, I'm not, I'm not criticizing any of those things. But just remember, Jesus is the true vine. We've got to remember that. And then we can give him glory for all the temporal things too. Okay, we need to be done. I promise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for excitement and enthusiasm that can come from knowing these things. But please help us as we leave. And almost instantly we're not excited and we're not enthusiastic because that's just not how life is. And so, Lord, just encourage us with that sustained, sure, steady joy that can be found only by faith in Christ that will, in fact, transcend the circumstances. May we live and breathe and suffer and die and all of the things that we do in life, good and bad, for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.